You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Good morning and welcome to America's Web Radio. And it's time now for a veteran story with host Pete Mecca. And before we get started in uh, introducing uh, Pete's guest, uh, I wanted to uh, remind everybody that we've started a thing here and we've got veterans that are needing prayer, whether you're, you are a veteran or you know a veteran or family members a veteran. And that veteran, if you'd like to request a prayer and have his name mentioned, uh, or her name mentioned on the air, we'll be glad to do it. Just go to our website and look at, uh, J. Roy Ritchie Memorial and Memorial Veteran Prayer Line and fill in the information and, um, just to send it to us, and we'll be glad to do it. With that, um, we have the loss of a brother, Joseph Cronin. Uh, he was in the Army and passed away on New Year's Eve, and that always saddens us when another brother is... But he's in a better place, I'm sure. We want to mention in prayer uh, Larry... Kenyon, Peter Manfrey, and Liston Edge. And if you have somebody that you'd like to uh, have us say a prayer for, all across the country, veterans are tuning in and are doing exactly that, praying for their brothers and sisters. And so with that being said, before we get started with the show, we'll take one minute of silence to think of about our brothers and sisters that we're losing. Amen. So, Pete, you've got quite a guest on. Uh, I think what what did what did you army guys used to call them jarheads or something like that? <laughs> and did, I don't call them that anymore. I did that in the bar one night, David, and I paid the price for it. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. Uh, good morning, America. This is Pete Mecca, your host for a veteran story on. Um, americanswebradio.com uh, my special guest today is mark trainer uh, he's a Napa's graduate vietnam veteran but we were discussing his book right before the show started and he told me some outstanding news about his book uh, mark welcome to the show give the folks the name of your book and what you just told me about it well, thanks pete it's good to be here with you this morning i appreciate the uh, the opportunity to talk with you um, the book is a novel. Its uh, title is A Quiet Cadence. It was published by the Naval Institute Press uh, this past summer. 
Um, yeah, it's been really, uh, really kind of a, a thrill that uh, a couple weeks ago, the uh, Washington Independent Review of Books, a well-regarded uh, book review outlet, um, named it uh, one of their favorite books of uh, 2020 and called it the most powerful book on combat during the Vietnam War that the uh, reviewer had ever read. Um, and at roughly the same time, um, I didn't see this one coming at all either, was uh, uh, the Historical Novel Society uh, named it one of their favorite books and said that uh, Trainer has penned an instant classic of war fiction, one whose images do not go gently into that good night, but force us to confront the searing psychological scars many former wartime soldiers suffer with silently. A must-read. So uh, it was very gratifying to, uh, to, of course, see both of those things. So thanks for mentioning it. Yes, sir. Outstanding, Mark. Congratulations on that. Uh, folks, we'll get to the book a little bit later uh, toward the end of the program. But uh, like I say, my guest, Mark Trainer, he uh, describes himself as a reconstructed Yankee. And I'll let him tell you all about that. Mark, where were you born and raised, sir? Yeah. I grew up in Vermont, Pete. Uh, what I would call uh, Mayberry RFD with about four feet of snow <laughs> at most times. Um, small town, Vermont. Uh, uh, towns of Proctor and Rutland there at the base of Killington for anybody that skied up north. Um, wonderful place to grow up in the 50s and 60s. And uh, then went from there in 1964, June of 1964, to Annapolis, Maryland, uh, to attend the Naval Academy. And uh, you had never been south of New York City, and there you are in Annapolis, Maryland. Uh, tell us a little bit about uh, your first impressions of Annapolis, the Academy, and uh, a little bit about uh, whatever you want to talk about, the weather and maybe your uh, uh, freshman year at the Academy. Yeah. Okay. Um yeah, you're right. I'd, I had relatives that lived uh, right outside New York City, and I'd never been south of their house. Uh, in <laughs> fact, I, I believe that was the first train ride I ever took, was from uh, um, New York to Baltimore, and then uh, <clears throat> got down to Annapolis. And uh, Annapolis in 1964 was still not a whole heck of a lot more than a, a small fishing village, I think, or sailing village. Uh, grown a lot since then, of course, but uh, reported into the Naval Academy in June, um, immediately had my head shaved and my uniforms issued, and uh, got into the routine. Plebe summer, particularly in those days, uh, was very much uh, akin to boot camp. Um, a great deal of, uh, of uh, you know, military uh, classes and all, and a great deal of... Uh, physical activity and hazing and uh, exercising. And the big thing was we were the class of 1968, so uh, anytime a, uh, an upperclassman uh, saw us, they would love to say drop for, drop for 68, and we'd do 68 push-ups plus one to beat Army, of course. And um, <laughs> it wasn't just during the summer. That lasted. Uh, we ran every place we went if we weren't marching, basically. I guess we did get to walk to class, 
but anytime we're inside Bancroft Hall, which is the the big, uh, I guess you'd call it a dormitory, but it it holds all four thousand midshipmen plus uh, uh, a dining hall that uh, called King Hall that seats all four thousand at exactly the same time, um, wow. as well as a lot of other facilities in there. So it's a a massive place, and in those days, please didn't walk in Bancroft Hall. You ran everywhere you went. Um, <laughs> so uh, uh, my my first impression after having been there for about a day was that, um, you know, this young kid from good old Vermont where uh, there was snow on the ground for about uh, eight months out of the year, I think, um, had just dropped into a soggy, wet hell. Uh <laughs> Because I, I had never seen such heat and humidity as uh, Annapolis <laughs> that summer had. And um, Welcome to the was, south, uh, right? Yeah, exactly. It was kind <laughs> of, uh, holy smokes, what has is, what is Rita and Jack Strainer's little boy Mark gotten himself into here? Um, <laughs> and then after oh, what kind of, uh, they, when we talked before, Mark, you told me about some of the classes that you took, and I went, wow, I barely got through Algebra 1, but... Tell folks about some of the classes you guys had to take. Yeah, back in those days, um, everybody got what they called a major in uh, naval science, and you could minor along with that. I chose to get a minor in foreign affairs, but nobody got in any other kind of major. That's that's what it was, and you had to take uh, um, a very broad core curriculum, largely aimed towards uh, engineering and science and all. Um, that has changed some uh, over the last uh, couple of decades, or more than a couple, I guess, um, where people can actually choose majors in different um, areas of, of expertise. But, uh, uh, yeah, in my day, um, and it probably continues uh, to some degree today, well, a large degree today, um, everybody took... Uh, a lot of math and science, and so I had uh, everything from, uh, uh, I think it was four semesters, two or four semesters of calculus, uh, differential equations, a couple semesters of physics, a couple semesters of nuclear physics, a couple semesters of electrical engineering, um, and that kind of thing. And I'm actually a uh, history and English uh, kind of guy in my own head, so that was... Um, that was an interesting four years for uh, uh, fighting the academic system there, I guess. I bet it was. Like I say, you lost me at Algebra 1, okay? Uh, yeah. <laughs> there, there, uh, I know the, the life, of course, was military during the, the uh, school year, but yet during the summer you guys uh, had some great activity. Tell me about your first summer between your first and second year there. Yeah, it, it uh, is a great program at the academy um, for getting you oriented to a lot of different things in the fleet. Um, after uh, your plebe year, um, I spent the summer on the USS Boston, which was uh, one of the old uh, gigantic cruisers. And um, you go on board the ship after that first year as a uh, non-rated enlisted man, so that that meant that you could go on a lot of the different chores that uh, and duties and responsibilities that an enlisted man on board ship did, and that that included everything from 
standing watch in uh, some of the watch sections of the ship, and uh, which was always a great deal of fun and, and a great learning experience. And then the other end of that spectrum was you spent hours um, in the broiling sun chipping paint. So, uh, <laughs> uh, so you learned a lot what it was about what it was like to be an enlisted sailor on a ship. And you got a glimpse of what it was like to be an officer, but uh, the real focus was primarily on the enlisted ranks at that point, so you didn't know what it was like. And we that's uh, that's, that's, uh, that's good training. That, that's great training, I think, for an officer to get a, a taste of what it is to be an enlisted man before they get their uh, commission. But uh, now we're going to go to a break in about one or two minutes. But your next summer, your second summer, uh, what did you do? Uh, second summer gets split up into several uh, different areas. Went to Pensacola, Florida for several weeks of flight training. Um, that was great fun. I knew I wasn't going to be an aviator, so uh, I was in the back seat of a, of a plane doing acrobatics half the time that we were there. And then we went to Charleston for a couple weeks of uh, submarine training and to Little Creek for a couple weeks of uh, marine training and then back to the academy for a couple weeks of... Uh, of summer type classes. Well, very, very interesting, Mark. Now we're going to get into your uh, uh, the solo between your junior and senior year, which I think is very, very interesting. In just a minute, but folks, we're going to our first break. We'll be back in just a couple minutes. Stand by. If you live to serve and want to make an even bigger difference, consider joining the U.S. Army. With training in fields like medical care, linguistics, and engineering, an Army career can amplify your efforts with humanitarian opportunities all over the world. Plus, you'll receive competitive pay and incredible benefits, so you'll be taken care of, too. Learn more at GoArmy.com. I want to remind everybody that uh, the show, we support... Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame. And if you haven't been down to it, it's in the Floyd Building right across the street from the Capitol. It's the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame. And it's it's worth every minute you spend a day there and go through and meet by picture and story the veterans that have served and were heroes from Georgia. We'll be back with... Pete and his guest, Mark, were right after this. Hi, this is Rocky Blair, and I hope you'll make plans to join us on January 28th for Warriors for Hope. I'm thrilled to be a part of this virtual fundraiser for St. Jude's Children's Research Hospital and Warriors to Citizen. These organizations do so much to support veterans, first responders, and families who have been touched by pediatric cancer. I'd also like to thank David Moxley and his show, David's Pick, here on America's Web Radio for supporting Warriors for Hope. And I know you'll want to join in and support this event as well on January 28th. So visit warriorsforhope.events. That's warriors and the number four, hope.events. You can make a gift and reserve your seat for this virtual benefit. Again, that's warriors and the number four, hope.events. Thanks for your support, and we'll see you at noon on January 28th. And before then, Rocky Blyer is going to join us on the telephone uh, this coming Friday with another special guest, a gentleman that's barely been heard of. Uh, I think his name's Lee Greenwood. He might have done a song about uh, God Bless the USA or something like that. But he's going to be with us as well on Friday, this coming Friday, day after tomorrow. Um, Lee Greenwood and Rocky Blyer will be joining us. And we do support... St. Jude's and uh, 
the warriors to citizens. It's so important, the transition period. With all of that being said, let's get back to Pete and his guest, Mark, right now. Lee Greenwood. I think I've heard that name before. He, he had a, a pretty good song out. All right, we're with Mark Trainer, Annapolis graduate and Vietnam veteran. <clears throat> okay, Mark, we're into your uh, summer between your junior and senior year. I thought that was a very interesting year, I mean, summer for you. Tell the folks about it. That, that was. It was it was a great experience, Pete. Um, we call that first-class summer at the academy because your senior year is called your first-class year. And I got, uh, I, uh, I got to spend that summer on an aircraft carrier, the USS America, over in the Mediterranean. And um, wonderful experience. Um, you went on board as an officer at that point, and... Uh, I had a real privilege because I split my time on board ship uh, with uh, an aviation squadron. I actually got to fly off the ship uh, two or three times in the back seat of a jet. And uh, then the other half I got to spend with, uh, uh, as kind of like a third lieutenant, if you will, with the uh, Marine <laughs> Detachment on board. So I, I uh, again, learned a lot about the Marine, uh, both officers and uh uh, and the enlisted men, and um, learned a fair amount about uh, aviators' li- aviators' life on board a carrier too, and had some great experiences. Got full liberty in a couple of interesting places. One of which was actually uh, in Turkey, and there was some sort of a anti-American demonstration that was going on there uh, after we were ashore. And um, I always remember that um, they brought the Marine detachment from the ship onto uh, onto the beach, and we got escorted from uh, uh, someplace in Istanbul um, between lines of uh, armed Marine guards um, back out to the launches to get back out to the carrier. So that that was my first wow. um, experience with uh, kind of Middle East activities. Wow! And I knew that Great the, uh, the yeah the plane that you. Uh, flew off the carrier was the A-5 Vigilante. Uh, just very briefly, as a young man, that's your first launch off an aircraft carrier. What was being launched off an aircraft carrier? What did it feel like to you? Uh, you know, it's the most uh, exciting feeling in the world for a young guy. You can see why people really want to be aviators. It's a it's an incredibly dangerous activity, but... Uh, um, you know, you're sitting there in the back seat of a jet, and uh, the plane captain is down on the deck beside you, and he's signaling to the pilot, and the pilot puts, puts the engines to uh, full maximum because they need all kinds of power to get up in the air after, you know, it's a relatively short run off the deck of a carrier. <laughs> and um, then the uh, uh, the pilot, uh, you're all strapped in there, of course, and you got everything from your parachute harness to your seat harness and all. And uh, um, the pilot uh, uh, salutes the deck captain, and the deck captain uh, bends down on one knee and puts his hand to the deck. And at that point, uh, they let loose the catapult, and you go from zero to, I've forgotten what it was, but it was like zero to 80 or 90 or 100 miles an hour in just no, t- I mean, seconds. And and you, you go flying off the end of the carrier, and because you've been on, on a solid surface, when you go off, the first experience is you actually drop down. Um, 
which is interesting because you kind of see in the water coming up, up at you at that <laughs> point. And then, and then the plane just goes nose up and goes up into the air. And it's just, uh, uh, I've had the opportunity um, uh, in more recent times to land on a carrier a couple of times, although that's been on a, in a prop plane. And yeah. um, it's always a thrill to uh, go on and off a carrier. And, and landing on it, of course, is uh, you got to get back onto that thing because um, you're in the middle of the Mediterranean. And that in <laughs> itself is um, just an amazing experience. gives you tremendous regard for the guys and gals today. That, uh, oh, yeah. I've, I've, interviewed a lot of, uh, I've interviewed a lot of Navy pilots, and those guys are good. Um, I'm a pilot myself, but I don't know if I want to land on the carrier. <laughs> uh, all right, 1968, February, your senior year. <clears throat> You graduate from the academy, but you uh, chose the United States Marine Corps. Tell us a little bit about that, Rotunda, and why the Marines? Yeah, uh, after my plea year, um, I kind of leaned towards um, towards joining the Marines, uh, if I could. Um, I was very impressed by some of the Marine officers that I saw there at the academy. And then after my second summer, when we spent time with the Marines down at uh, Little Creek, that that really confirmed that even more. And of course, and I had, uh, you know, I had a, uh, a wish to to serve and um, uh, in the Marines. And the war had started. The Vietnam War had started in August of '64, so about two months after uh, I got to the academy. So um, I think we all had that in the back of our minds uh, during all four years that. Uh, classmates ahead of us have been doing that and in those days uh, you got this uh, choose um, if you're going into the Navy what type of ship you're going on or to volunteer for the Marine Corps um, <clears throat> about 10% of each class was allowed to go into the Marine Corps it's, it's increased to about 25% today um, and we actually chose a couple weeks after the uh, it was just scheduled that way. A couple of weeks after the Tet Offensive of uh, 1968, and at that time there were bulletin boards in the rotunda, which is the central area for Bancroft Hall, that gigantic facility I was talking about earlier. And every time one of the one of the graduates from an earlier class was killed in Vietnam, they put up his picture and uh, and his. Uh, uh, yearbook biography up there and of course there were an awful lot of Marines that were up there and a lot of uh, a lot more pictures went up around Tet um, so uh, it was an interesting time because uh, uh, we didn't quite make our 10% quota and most years they turned people away but uh, um, not as many folks wanted to volunteer to be Marines in uh, February of 68 as they had before and then uh, <laughs> I think that's understandable. I think that's understandable. Yeah. But, uh, okay, uh, so you chose the Marines, and where did you go for your training, and take it from there? Went, uh, all new Marine lieutenants go through what's called uh, the basic school. Um, you're already a lieutenant when you get there. It's at Quantico, Virginia, the Marine Corps base there. <clears throat> but it is, um, it's uh, about six months of intense training. Um really teaching you a lot of the, the essential basics about being a Marine officer with a very heavy emphasis on uh, 
on infantry uh, tactics and activities um, and weapons. Um, because in the first instance, every Marine is, uh, is a rifleman, uh, as the saying goes. And while it's about six months, today it's six months, uh, my class went through in about 19 and a half weeks because they were anxious to, uh, to get us into, uh, you know, our real activity. And, um, so we graduated on New Year's Eve of, uh, 1968. And, uh, uh, later in January, um, uh, I left the, uh, uh, the snows of the East Coast and, uh, headed off to, uh, Vietnam. Wow. Okay. Uh, I know that you were in Okinawa for a few days, and then you went straight to Da Nang. Uh, tell us about yeah. your arrival on Da Nang and, and where you went and what did you do? Yeah, on Okinawa, I was assigned to uh, the 1st Marine Division, which was headquartered just outside Da Nang. And so I flew down to Da Nang uh, after a few days of, uh, of being uh, on Okinawa there and at the 1st Marine Division headquarters. I was then assigned to the 5th Marines, and that uh, infantry regiment was operating out of a uh, uh, fire base called uh, at Anwa. There was actually a village there uh, called Anwa in the Anwa Valley of uh, Vietnam. And uh, that was, I guess you'd say it was basically southwest of Da Nang, um, if you're looking towards Laos. Um so I got there, and uh, you know, I, I really kind of thought that I'd uh, I'd been uh, helicoptered into the OK Corral. Um, <laughs> it's a uh, large base um, uh, with red clay dirt, and dug into that dirt were an awful lot of bunkers, and the entire thing was surrounded by uh, what I think of today as miles of concertina wire, and uh, there were rows of tents and. Um, with bunkers interspersed uh, among them because uh, the place would get rocketed on a fairly regular basis. Um, and there were bunkers not only in the internal areas of the base, but, uh, of course, all around the perimeter, too, because uh, they had to be, uh, the entire base had to be guarded against ground attack. So I spent spent a few days there um Doing some some more refresher training and uh, uh, various things, you know, weapons and tactics and uh, first aid and stuff like that. And then uh, um, I was assigned to take over uh, the first platoon of Bravo Company and the uh, uh, first battalion of the Fifth Marines, and um, they were operating in an area that uh, uh, crossed the main supply road to Da Nang, and um, so I actually one morning uh, uh, hopped up on the back of a tank um, that was leading a, a small convoy of trucks out there. There were a couple of tanks um, uh, in the convoy, and I rode out to where the platoon was going to be, or the company was going to be coming across the hills and the rice paddies, and um, I got to where I was going to hook up with uh, with the company, and um, one tank stayed with me, so I wasn't just, you know, one little second lieutenant standing on the side of the road in Indian country, and the rest <laughs> of the company went off to Da Nang or wherever they were headed. Um, 
And I, my first glimpse of uh, the company was watching, you know, 80 or 100 guys sneaking over the hills in the, uh, the uh, rice paddies towards me. And I have to tell you one kind of funny story about that. Um, uh, you know, here I was, a brand-new second lieutenant. I probably looked all of 13 years old at the time. <laughs> um, you know, I had on all new gear. I looked like I'd just robbed an Army Navy store because everything I had on was brand new, you know. And uh, I'm standing there, and the company comes across the rice paddies and starts to file its way past me. Nobody pays much attention. They don't care about this brand-new lieutenant standing there on the side of a dirt road. And uh, um, the captain comes along, and he tells me to fall in behind his radio uh, uh, radio team and that he would introduce me to my platoon when we got to the hill where we were going to spend that night. And, um, you know, the, the Marines, they all just look like hell. They've been through a couple of fights, and they just medevaced a guy that, um, or several guys that uh, had run into booby traps. And, you know, they've been out in the bush forever, and they look like they've been out there. And, like I said, I look like Brick. I was something brand new out of a uh, Army <laughs> Navy store window. That's okay. Mark, we're going, excuse me, Mark. We are going to our second break, folks. Uh, we'll be right back with uh, Mark and let you uh, let him tell us about his uh, time in Vietnam. Uh, stand by. We'll be right back. I'm glad Mark's on and, and has mentioned some of the stories uh, that were around, have been around his career. And we always uh, like to take a moment to talk to graduating high school seniors as well as college graduates if you're looking for a career we highly recommend that you check the military uh it's not all like what mark's saying he he was in a time that uh, uh a lot of people think that's all that the military does but it's not and there's career opportunities in the military today uh as good as any civilian career and once you go into the military and you get your honorable discharge your dd214 uh you've got something you've got you're a step above everybody else and when you put that on your resume and you go looking for a job it makes all the difference in the world and we highly recommend anyone that's in a position that they're looking for a job, look to the military. And not just a job, an occupation and a career. I know my son uh, is a major now in the Air Force and loves every minute of it. And uh, you will too. So I want to remind everybody about that. And uh, also the fact that in Johns Creek, Georgia, we have the healing wall which is a replica of the vietnam wall that traveled all over the united states bringing closure in many cases to uh, vietnam veterans and their families so keep that in mind and if you're in the johns creek area or perimeter center area uh, they also have a vietnam veterans uh, memorial and we encourage everyone please support your veterans your first responders, and your any of the first responders, and certainly we back the police departments. So, with that being said, let's get back to Pete and his guest. Pete, it's all yours. 
Thank you, David. Okay, Mark, you're in Vietnam. You're a new uh, Shane Tell You lieutenant with a new uniform on, um, and you're assigned to um, the 1st platoon. You took over Bravo Company. Tell us about your experiences. Uh, thanks, Peter. I, I won't make uh, this too long. Just to finish up what I was saying before, the amazing thing was this young guy uh, walks up to me, and uh, he's scruffy and bearded, and uh, you know he's been out there for a long time, and he looks at me and he says, Hey, Lieutenant. And I figured, you know, well, here it comes. It's the first test of a new guy. And uh, I said, Yeah, Marine. And he says, Is your name Trainer? And I, I was amazed. I said, yes, it is. Why? And he said, well, you don't know me, but I was a few years behind you in high school, and I knew your brother in Vermont. Wow. So here I was, 7,000 miles away, standing uh, on the edge of a rice paddy in Vietnam, and I meet a guy from my hometown, which I thought That's was amazing. Pretty, pretty amazing. So, That's uh, amazing. Go ahead. Yeah, I took over the uh, rifle platoon, and the area that we worked in was mostly rice paddies and small hills. And um, our job was to uh, to uh, protect that area and to try and find any Viet Cong or NVA that uh, uh, that were in that area and um, uh, to kill or capture them. And uh, the area was very, very heavily laden by booby traps, which is very difficult to deal with because, um, uh, you know, day after day after day, um, the, uh, the units would uh, patrol through that area. And, um, uh, you know, I, for example, once uh, ran seven straight patrols and lost a man every single day to a booby trap, either, either wounded or killed, and didn't see anybody to shoot at. And... Um, yeah. You know, that, that is a tremendously difficult psychological thing when you're going through that. And uh, um, and the troops did it every day. And, uh, uh, you know, we would have an occasional uh, firefight. Um, you know, sometimes the, uh, the units in the company would be engaged in a real pitch battle. Um, and as often as not, though, it was a day-to-day fight against something you couldn't see, namely the, the booby traps. And the uh, the troops were magnificent. They, uh, you know, not necessarily uh, all from what uh, some people would call the right side of the tracks, but, uh, you know, they they really did their duty. I, I only recall one man that, uh, that really didn't, um, and uh, he had uh, what he said was an accidental discharge and shot himself in the foot. We all believed that uh, he had done it to get out of the bush, but um, uh, we couldn't prove it. But uh, everybody else was just uh, was just magnificent the way that they uh, they performed out in the field um, under some pretty tough circumstances. I can imagine uh, those booby traps were horrible in Vietnam. Mark, uh, tell the folks about the day that you tried to uh, reach up and grab a tracer. So that was my very first firefight, and uh, um, we were going across a rice paddy, and um, uh, we ran into uh, a bunch of, I guess it was NVA, it could have been VC, but I think it was NVA, um, that started firing at us, and so uh, we 
Uh, I was trying to get the platoon up against a uh, rice paddy dike so that we could engage um, and eventually send an enveloping group uh, uh, around the end to uh, to take out that that group of NBA. Um, but as I went tearing forward, running forward to get down behind a rice paddy dike and start directing things, um, this line of uh, blue-green tracers went zipping past my my head probably about four inches away from my face and uh, um, you know just off to the side of my ear and I remember having the strangest craziest sensation that it was like little blue green blurbs of light and if I had just been able to hold up my hand I could have caught them like a cartoon character on a Saturday morning (laughs) cartoon you know just incredibly stupid um, and it, I'm sure that that thought only lasted for a millisecond because there was too much going on. Um, and I didn't think about that until after the, the fight was over and we were headed back to the hill and all. And I got thinking, you know, that meant that if there were six or eight bullets in between every one of those tracers, um, there were probably a hundred or or more bullets uh, that had just zipped within inches of my face there in this blue-green line, and um, if that uh, NVA gunner had flinched or burped or moved or anything um, and swung his machine gun just, uh, you know, half an inch to to his right, uh, he would have taken my head off, but he didn't. So, uh, um, wow. you know, I didn't, have, I didn't have time to be scared while it was happening. I was plenty scared afterwards just thinking about it all. Um, <laughs> yeah. No, you guys humped. Yeah, you guys walked uh, and patrolled sometimes 10, 12 hours a day. And that really took a toe on your feet and eventually sidelined you. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, um, it's it's something that uh, was really unfortunate for me. Um, You know, most. most uh, uh, infantry officers spend uh, half or so of their uh, of their combat tour in Vietnam uh, out in the bush, and the other half uh, back in a uh, more of a rear area doing things. And um, uh, our typical pattern was that we'd uh, we'd leave the hill that we were on, say uh, before dawn, and uh, go out and patrol straight through and get back. Um, oftentimes just before dark. Um, and so 10 or 12 or more hours in the blazing uh, sun of walking with, uh, you know, a rifle and all kinds of ammunition and flak jacket and helmet and hand grenades and carrying stuff with you. And um, I had, uh, I guess I'm a little pig-headed, I had been told uh, during my, my uh, pre-activation or pre-commissioning physical that... <clears throat> There was something wrong with my feet, and uh, when the uh, Navy doctor asked me what I wanted to do in the Marines, I said I wanted to be an infantry officer, and he said, well, that's not a good move because your feet aren't going to be able to do it. You ought to be a tanker or an artilleryman or something. And uh, I said, no, this is this is really what I wanted to do. That's, uh, you know, it's, it's the, the hard end of the spear for the Marines is, uh, is the infantry, and... Um, uh, all the other parts are important, but I wanted to be uh, part of that. And um, turned out he uh, he turned out to be right. Um, so after uh, after uh, certainly less than uh, 
than the time that I wanted to spend out in the bush. Um, I hit the stage where I simply uh, couldn't do those uh, 10 or 12 hour walks anymore because my feet wouldn't uh, wouldn't do it. Very strange thing. I could run, I could uh, run great distances and all, you know, in relatively short amounts of time, but week after week of, uh, of walking with all that gear uh, on like that for 10 or 12 hours a day just didn't work. So I ended up uh, having to give up my platoon, and I went and became the executive officer of the company and did that for a little while, and then I got sent to uh, to uh, the division uh, headquarters area uh, where I worked uh, in the uh, what's called the G1 shop, which is basically... Uh, uh, personnel and administrative area and things like that and uh, um, spent uh, a bunch of time pushing paper there and the uh, uh, during some of that I was able to uh, to lead a reaction platoon which usually um, meant that at night you take a, uh, a platoon of Marines and set up someplace on the division perimeter the guard against uh, bad guys trying to get through the wire, and then the next morning, if anything had happened, you'd go out. And, um, and of course, we had rocket attacks there on a not infrequent basis, and so we'd end up running for the bunkers, and occasionally uh, some of the bad guys in the wire, but compared to being out in the bush, it was... Uh, it was kind of like living at the Hilton compared to what, uh, <laughs> what, the, what the troops so. out in the bush were like, you know. That, that's a gross yeah. exaggeration, and it's not fair to the guys that spent a tremendous amount of time in places like division headquarters. They all did that. They all did a good job, and they all uh, were in harm's way to one degree or another. Um, I just draw the distinction. It's not the same as being with an infantry unit. Yeah, you uh, you you never got wounded, right? No, I got knocked down twice when booby traps exploded around me, but. Uh, but was never wounded. Um, unfortunately, other people around me were killed or wounded at the time, but uh, uh, just an odd thing, I was not at all. Um, I have sometimes joked with people since then that I was only 5'8", so uh, you know I could get everything except my boots into my helmet when bad things happened and uh, look like a turtle going across a rice paddy dike. So, uh, <laughs> I, I, I credit a turtle in camouflage. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I... I credit that with uh, with staying intact more than anything else. I think. Um, uh, you said when we talked, Mark, that uh, for long stretches of time people wouldn't smile. Can you explain that to the listeners? Yeah, it's one of my my uh, my more central uh, recollections of of the time out in the bush was that. After um, patrol, after patrol, after patrol with, you know, an occasional firefight, but just losing guys on a regular basis to uh, primarily to booby traps. Um, You know, it was just I think everybody's mood just got very gray. Uh, I, I recall thinking that there were weeks that went by, multiple weeks that went by, when I never saw anybody in my platoon smile. Um, you know, it was just, it was a tough thing. We went out every day and uh, uh, faced that kind of uh, activity and then uh, then either stayed out on an ambush patrol at night, 
you know, waiting to see if uh, some of the, the NVA or VC would uh, walk through the area that you were set up to ambush them on, and sometimes that happened. More often than not, it didn't. Um, yeah. But I think that the uh, the really worst part of it all um, was just the, the draining uncertainty of walking for hours and hours and hours, day on end. Uh, it seemed like days without right. end. Um and then having somebody, not always the first guy, in fact, often not the first guy in a patrol, trip a booby trap and uh, uh, have him or him and people around him either badly, very badly wounded or uh, or killed. And um, I think that that just, you know, it just uh, became a tremendous weight after a period of time. I, I can understand that. Uh, Mark, we're going to our last break. When we come back, folks, I'm going to tell you very briefly about uh, uh, his career and what Mark did after the war and things like that. But I want him to read some excerpts from his book. They are fascinating, so please stand by. We'll be right back. Hi, this is Rocky Blair, and I hope you'll make plans to join us on January 28th for Warriors for Hope. I'm thrilled to be a part of this virtual fundraiser for St. Jude's Children's Research Hospital and Warriors to Citizen. These organizations do so much to support veterans, first responders, and families who have been touched by pediatric cancer. I would also like to thank David Moxley and his show, David's Pick, here on America's Web Radio for supporting Warriors for Hope. And I know you'll want to join in and support this event as well on January 28th. So visit warriorsforhope.events. That's warriors and the number four, hope.events. You can make a gift and reserve your seat for this virtual benefit. Again, that's warriors and the number four, Hope.events. Thanks for your support, and we'll see you at noon on January 28th. If you live to serve and want to make an even bigger difference, consider joining the U.S. Army. With training in fields like medical care, linguistics, and engineering, an Army career can amplify your efforts with humanitarian opportunities all over the world. Plus, you'll receive competitive pay and incredible benefits, so you'll be taken care of, too. Learn more at GoArmy.com. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls of all ages, join me, Roger B., every Tuesday at 1400 hours right here on America's Web Radio for the Locked and Loaded Show. We will talk about guns, weapons, ammo, gun accessories, prepping, and so much more. So be sure to join us every Tuesday at 1400 or 2 p.m. for Locked and Loaded on America's Web Radio. Hello, I'm Dr. Mike Karuchak. Have you ever wondered what doctors talk about amongst themselves? If you do, join us on the Doctor's Lounge and hear the doctors' conversations amongst themselves. Join me and my co-host, Dr. Hal Schertz, every Thursday morning, 8 to 9 a.m. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Okay, folks, I, I really am embarrassed to do this, but Mark has such a fantastic story. And we're not going to be able to get it all in, but I can tell you this. After Vietnam, uh, he was an aide to a commanding general at Camp Lejeune. Uh, he did get into artillery, said he went down to the Caribbean, and they blew up a lot of jungle down there. Uh, when he got out of the military, uh, out of the Marines, he went to law school. Graduated from law school in 76 and practiced law for uh, a lot of years until he supposedly retired, but... His wife has told him that he has fought, he has uh, flunked retirement. Uh, Mark, I know you're still busy. You're still doing things, but uh, I want to give you the time 
to read some excerpts from your book. It was fascinating writing. I wish the heck I could write like that. Go ahead, let the readers and listeners know what you're reading, and the floor is yours, sir. Well, thank you, Pete. Um, I've checked out three different uh, parts of the little segments of the book here. Uh, the book is written kind of in two parts. One is uh, the character whose name is Marty McClure's time. He's a young Marine, 19-year-old machine gunner. Uh, and the first part of the book is uh, his time in Vietnam. And then the second part is the 10-year period after he comes home, uh, leading up to the dedication of the Vietnam Memorial. And um, it's okay with you. I thought I'd read the introduction and one section from the Vietnam part and one from uh, the uh, the years after part. And if I'm running on too long, just say something and I'll, I'll cut down, okay? That's fine. Okay. The show is yours, sir. Take it away. Thank you. Sometimes the ghosts talk to me still. Forty years ago, they came frequently. In my 30s and 40s and 50s, not very much. They visited some in recent years, and mostly that's okay. The dream frightened me for a long time. I couldn't tell if my old friends accused me or wished me well. Sometimes they seem to look to me for answers I've never had. I searched for a long time for a way to make peace with them and what I'd lost. My best friend and my wife helped me with that. Corey lost a great deal more than I did in Vietnam, at least physically, yet helped me remember what was good. Patty lived with much of what I brought home and saved me more than once from the dark. I've spoken very little of my war and the turmoil that followed, and over the years nearly no one has asked. Most men my age celebrate Woodstock and hate Ashbury, reminisce about sit-ins on campuses or protests in the streets. They still marvel at their luck in the draft or, depending on their audience, boast of or bury the deferments they received. My decile of the 60s generation grows old, having said little to our children about times very different for us. Recently, though, even us old guys sometimes hear thanks for your service sort of faint echoes of the well-deserved cheers greeting our troops coming home from our more recent wars. My guess is they'll find it difficult, too, to grapple with the truth that they've learned. We have more in common than they may know. I'd like my kids to understand the events that changed their old man forever when I wasn't much older than theirs are now. Sometimes I think they believe my memories of those charged days were surgically removed along with the bullet in my back. Not that I blame them. I haven't exactly encouraged questions about my war or its impact on me. But I remember it all, a gift and a curse. Remembrance across decades is like looking through a telescope. Sometimes people and events in the distance come into the sharpest focus of all. The pictures come to me in extraordinary detail, like photos my brain took but couldn't erase. Sometimes frayed at the edges with things in the middle I wish I'd never seen though there are some photos I would not want to lose. I remember the odors, the heat and the wet, the exhaustion and fear. I can still taste the bite of gunpowder, the terrible ferric sweetness of blood. I can still hear the cacophonous noises, the voices, the argo, the silences. It's as though they're next to my ear. What a profane crash gang we were. I remember the pain and the joy when I returned to the world the hopes and the nightmares, the shame of what I did to get my first job, the one I'll retire from soon. I remember the law. Patty thinks it's important that I tell the truth. She knows little of my story, but she's probably right. She's usually been. 
I think it's time I tried. I know that too many men grow old basking in selective memories of their youth, but I don't believe much in glory, though I wouldn't trade anything for my time in the Corps. Unless, of course, it was to save the forever young man who marched front and center in my sleep. That dream always begins in silence, an absolute vacuum of noise, then only a faint distant sound, the whop whop and thrum of an approaching medevac bird, quivering in the air, a muted tremor of cries, a shroud of gunpowder-infused fog covers all. Then my old friends emerge from the swirling pall and walk toward me, their eyes never leaving my face. They step to a cadence I sometimes strain to hear. Lately, John's spoken for all six of them. Tell them now, Mick, he says. Tell them the truth. This, then, is their story and mine. It begins on the day I saw the dead man above the trees. And then, Pete, I'm going to skip ahead. This is uh, a scene out of the Vietnam part of the book, partway into it. It says, The earth belched a sharp, roaring blast. It evaporated every other noise and filled the air with filthy smoke and debris. The booby-trapped Corrigan trip blew off his foot and ripped the meat from above his severed ankle to ten inches below his knee. When the acrid gray smoke cleared, I saw him writhing on his back near the front of our column. The bones in his legs stuck out like the bloody tines of a crushed tuning fork. He held his mangled stump up in the air with one hand, clutched at the dirt with the other as if he was struggling to keep from being torn away again from the earth. He began to scream, his shrieks climbing a hideous scale, breaking at the top, followed by a moaning gulp for air, then beginning again. They felt like molten tin rushing through my ears, filling my sinuses, making my teeth and cheekbones throb. I wanted to cover my ears, but I couldn't in front of the others. I squeezed my eyes shut so hard my sockets throbbed. My chest and stomach felt burned inside. The two corpsmen tied off Corey's leg. They knelt beside him, knees dark with his blood, bloody hands moving fast with tourniquet and bandages, checked his femoral arteries, his torso, his head and neck for other wounds. Harding cradled Corey's head in his lap, and Sergeant Gillis tried to hold him steady while Matt hit him with morphine and ran an IV into his arm. The two docs said little as they worked. They performed that choreography together too many times. It seemed to take a long time before the morphine quelled Corrigan's scream. He lay motionless, his eyes partly open and a dull gawk, his normally taut face flaccid and, de- and deflated. The tip of his tongue inched out as though seeking comfort from his dirty straw mustache. Below his trousers, his pallid leg ended in blood-soaked bandages lying in coagulated maroon dirt. My stomach clenched at the stench of gunpowder-charred meat. Corey murmured something as though he were trying to push unintelligible words into coherent sentences. It sounded like he was whispering, Mom. Even after the helicopter took him away, I could see his truncated leg and tortured face, smell the blood and burn meat. For the rest of that day and into that night, his scream seemed to linger in the air. When I squeezed my eyes shut trying to block out their noise, I saw bloody, jagged bones like snapped-off pipe stems slathered with gore. The echo of that day stayed with me, perhaps because that's when I began my descent toward a depth of depravity that appalls me now, the one that seemed common, nearly unremarkable, nearly necessary in that violent world. We saw no enemy the day Corey lost his leg or for days after that. 
We searched the small villas we came across, used an interpreter to question the inhabitants, found nothing, learned nothing of use. John said the villagers had little choice. If the enemy thought they cooperated with us, they'd be killed, or maybe they'd already taken sides. We patrolled farther into the valley each day, not knowing who was friend or foe, and finding no one to pay back. I kept seeing Corrigan's bloody, shattered stump, kept hearing his screams. And then jumping ahead, I'll read a short excerpt from the, uh, from the uh, time closer to, to the dedication of the memorial. Marty uh, lost several friends in Vietnam, and uh, he's arguing with Corrigan, who he's met up with again uh, and gets together with him uh, every week about uh, the wall. And he says, I've been home a long time. It's kind of like throwing yourself a graduation party a dozen years afterwards, and you're on your way. Big whoop. Corrigan says, a lot of vets are on their way. If we're honest, I doubt any of us have really come to grips with that war. The salute's going to be a way for people to say thanks for serving in a tough time. I thought about that, and I thought about my conversation with Matt. For years, being a Vietnam vet was like carrying a virus people could immunize themselves against only by silence. No one wanted to be reminded of that war. In the past, if I mentioned I'd served in Vietnam, most people seemed uninterested or embarrassed or uneasy, as though that time in my life weren't something I should be talking about. So I didn't, and after a while, that became fine with me. And now I didn't need a parade, and I sure as hell didn't need to go to Washington to remember all the friends I'd lost for no good reason that I could figure out. With all the news about the wall and vets groups around the country gearing up to travel to the salute, the ghosts were visiting me a lot these days. And then... Well, uh, Mark, uh, uh, I remember one part of your book, if you don't mind about the young man that he comes home from the war and he's going through the airport. Will you tell me about that one, please? I will. Let me, uh, let me find that. Outstanding book. Outstanding book. Could I have to wrap well, Thank you. Thank you so much, Pete. Um, so Marty's uh, traveling back to the Baltimore area and he's coming through O'Hare in Chicago. And uh, this is what he has to say. In O'Hare, I stood on a moving walkway heading towards the gate of my Baltimore up, flight. Despite the ache in my shoulder, I was in a great mood. Who cared if I was invisible? I was almost home. Besides, I'd never been on a moving walkway before. It was pretty cool. A trio of girls moved toward me on the other conveyor. Except for uniformed nurses and two gorgeous stews in their form-fitting uniforms on the plane from San Diego, how long had it been since I'd laid eyes on a pretty girl? The three I spotted a ways down the belt looked about my age. Pete, As the walkways pulled us toward each other, they seemed like angels floating on an invisible cloud. Long, straight hair, two blonde, the one in the middle of brunette, laughing quietly among themselves. The brunette wore a miniskirt I swore wasn't much bigger than a belt. As they got closer, I saw that all three were braless. God bless America, I thought. It is good to be home. One of the girls glanced at me, then said something to the others. I smiled happily. Got to wrap it. Oh, yeah, McClure, it is Pete, so, we gotta so go. damn good to be home. As we drew abreast of each other, I was just about to say, good morning, ladies, when with drill team precision, all three flipped me the bird. At uh, 
that's our arrival home in a nutshell. Mark, uh, we're going to have to cut it short. Uh, thank you so much for the interview. Uh, where can folks get your book, Mark? Uh, virtually any bookstore can get it for them, or they can order it either uh, from Amazon. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.